back to the podcast. This is episode number 56 and it's kind of a special episode because today I'm going to be speaking with Elizabeth Stanley, author of the fantastic book Widen the Window. And we're going to be exploring how we can find in ourselves and with our clients, how can we find resilience, well-being and even peak performance in these times. So there are some really big ideas in this podcast. I think one of them is this notion of how actually Elizabeth sees well-being, stress and trauma on the same continuum. Traditionally, we've seen these as separate, but seeing them on the same continuum creates a whole new kind of realm of possibility when working with them. So Elizabeth will be talking about why some people will find these times with the coronavirus moving around the world traumatic and others will only find it stressful and others will actually be resilient and creative and responsive in these times. And I think the the second big idea is that a lot of coaches, she'll talk about agency as being key in this and that when we think of agency, a lot of people and a lot of coaches think about what she calls the thinking brain's agency. This sense of like, who am I in this moment and what can I do? It's a, it's a great thing, but she's going to talk about the survival brain's agency and how that's different and why it's so important and how we can, how we can actually cultivate that kind of agency. And then the third big idea is, I think, really interesting. As you listen, you'll start to hear this, this gestalt, this, this um, holistic picture of the, the opportunity in these times that actually this break in the habituated way of living um, is actually creating a possibility for us to see the old ways of being and how they've led to unprecedented levels of, of chronic stress, illness, depression. Elizabeth will paint this really amazing picture of that we can actually start to to look at that in these times. So those are, I think, three fantastic reasons to listen to this podcast. If you feel like sharing this podcast, I'd be very grateful. I think it's a great resource. And with that said, let's dive in. Here is Elizabeth Stanley. Liz, great to be with you today. And um, as I was just saying uh, in the check-in, what a timely uh, moment for us to be speaking because of the work that we'll be exploring in this conversation. I can imagine you're very busy at the moment. How are you doing and, and how's things going? Thanks for having me today, Joel, and for checking in. I'm doing well. Um, I have been really busy. There are so many people right now whose lives have been completely upended and they're dealing with stress and trauma and anxiety in a range of different ways from the extreme of losing loved ones, losing jobs being sick themselves, now locked at home, having to homeschool kids on, you know, with no notice and no experience. There's just so many ranges of different things that are going on right now. And I've been doing a lot of interviews about working more effectively with stress and anxiety during this challenging time. Mm, yeah, that's going to be the, the topic of our conversation, trauma and stress, and how can we find resilience and even skillful means action in, in, the, in the face of stress. Yes. Um, I think it would be good, though, to start by, you know, a couple of things I want to bring into our conversation. One is just like, what's the work that you do and the research that you've been doing? I know you've been working with people like the U.S. military and stuff, testing, testing out the, the, the things you're creating. But also what I really liked in your book was your personal story. You know, it's a very... Um, a moving book in that way and perhaps you could share a bit about that as well the, the the personal journey you've been on and this work that you've created that's led us to this moment before we go into you know unpacking some of the the, the, <laughs> the other assets of you know, elements of stress and trauma and stuff yeah big absolutely. question. absolutely it's a big question but I'm really glad to answer it Joel um, there is nothing that I teach about that I haven't first learned from in my own mind and body Um, Like many of us, I come from a history of childhood adversity and childhood trauma. And by the time I got to college, I was already suffering from symptoms, but not really aware of it and pushing it aside. 
Um, I come from a long military history family, and I'm the ninth generation in my family to serve in the U.S. military and the U.S. Army. And so culturally, you know, the ways that stress and trauma were taught to me and modeled by my parents and modeled by everyone around me was just push it under, compartmentalize, suck it up and, and drive on and keep going. And so I got very good at that. Um, and then after uh, college, I did had an ROTC scholarship. I served in the army myself and I did, I spent some time in Korea and Germany and I did two deployments in the Balkans. And on one of the Balkans deployments, I had a near death experience where I stopped breathing completely. Um, and after that, I left active duty. And while I was in graduate school, my life, my body really started to show the effects of so many decades of various chronic stress and trauma that I had never really faced and never really recovered from. And so it first started as physical symptoms, which is a really common response to trauma, actually, in our cultures. Um, which is where we have so suppressed it that it comes out kind of sideways, obliquely in physical symptoms, back pain, um, chronic pain of all kinds, headaches, uh, irritable bowel syndrome and other gastrointestinal things. In my case, it showed up in problems with my immune functioning in terms of um, lots of lung complications and asthma. I developed asthma during that time. And I no longer have it. It was clearly a trauma response. Um, and eventually, I lost my eyesight. It turned out that I had Lyme disease. It had never been treated. Um, and so I'm dealing with these physical issues. I had depression and PTSD. And all of it made me realize that the way I had been in the world just was not going to be an option anymore. Like, I was going to need to learn a new And in doing that, I first tried mindfulness practices along with Western medicine and a variety of other things, acupuncture. Um, and my response to mindfulness initially was a, a little different than everyone else around me. I was <laughs> sitting down and doing a short period of practice and like many people, my mind would race. But sometimes while I would be doing just a short period of practice, I would find myself unable to breathe and you know, just completely choked up. And then for days, I would have flashbacks and my insomnia would be worse. I'd have chronic nausea. Um, I would have excessive startle response. I wouldn't wanna go out of the house. I'd get kind of agoraphobic for a bit. And then it would pass and then I would try practicing again and it would happen again. And no one could explain to me what was going on. And it made me first think, well, I must be doing this wrong. But then, no, I checked in with teachers. I was doing it right. So then I figured, well, this is just something wrong with me. Um, eventually, uh, through very happy circumstances, I was connected with some practitioners who were teaching a short model in resilience training that was body-based, rebuilding the nervous system after trauma. And... Through that, I found a therapist for myself. I was a client for many years, and then I did four years of clinical training and supervision in this um, modality. It's called somatic experiencing. It's one of the really um, better known of the body-based therapies to re-regulate after trauma. I had such success with it, and I realized, okay, I started to understand my neurobiology better at this point, and I realized what, what was happening was I was tapping into unresolved trauma. So this whole process led me to be interested in being able to share what I'd been learning with others. And I designed a training, a resilience training called Mindfulness-Based Mind Fitness Training. Um, the acronym is called MFIT, um, very similar and parallel to physical fitness, you know, mind fitness. And uh, we've tested it now in collaboration. I've tested it with neuroscientists and stress researchers in four different studies with the US military. Um, there's some other studies planned in other high stress professions. And, you know, it, it all comes down to where we're directing our attention. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that in a minute. But this whole journey, my story, the stories of the men and women I've trained, the science that I learned along the way, all of our scientific research, it all comes together in my book, Widen the Window, which is sort of the, you know, the end of the arc of this process. 
Mm, beautiful. That was a really long answer, Joel. <laughs> well, no, um, I, it's great. And, um, you know, before we talk about perhaps how we could respond in these times, you know, um, these uncertain times where there's real potential for people to become traumatized and stressed. Perhaps um, one of the things I liked in your book that you talked about was this continuum um, from stress to trauma and how, you know, I think in, often in the past we've seen them as being different things altogether. Perhaps you could say something about how you, you, you're seeing them on this continuum and what, why is that important? Yes, it's not the way that we conventionally think about it as, you know, connected. And in fact, many researchers and clinicians focus on one or the other. And so it perpetuates this myth that they are not connected. But at a neurobiological ba basis in our brains and our nervous systems and our bodies, they're, they're totally connected. And it all comes down to, um, well, I guess I want to take a moment and talk about the thinking brain and survival brain because it will help this answer. So neurobiologically, um, we have circuits that are completely interconnected. But in the book, I talk about them as two different parts of the brain because they are two different functions and two different ways that we make decisions. The thinking brain is the evolutionarily newest parts of our brain, and it's responsible for thinking and decisioning, decision making and problem solving and anticipating and planning, deciding all of these conscious functions. And most of us identify with our thinking brain because we hear it talking. It's the, the little voice in our head narrating and offering commentary as we're moving through our day. The survival brain, it's the part of the evolutionarily older parts of the brain. And the survival brain is what controls turning stress on with a process called neuroception, which is this unconscious threat appraisal process. It's happening all the time behind, you know, under behind the scenes, unconsciously, it's rapid, it's automatic, and the survival brain is just constantly scanning the external environment around us and the internal environment in us, checking out physical sensations, checking out those racing thoughts, checking out what's going on with our organs or if we're sick. And if the survival brain notices something that makes it feel threatened or challenged, it's going to turn stress arousal on. It's just a neurobiological done deal. It won't not happen because if there is something that is making the survival brain perceive that, we're going to have stress activation. So stress arousal is usually higher, greater, when the thing that is leading the survival brain to perceive something challenging is unpredictable, uncontrollable, novel, new, and potentially threatening to our physical survival or to our ego. And when you think about coronavirus today, it is all of those things, novel, unpredictable, uncontrollable, and potentially very threatening to our physical well-being. Of course, the survival brain is going to be creating a lot of stress with that. Now, if the survival brain also, in the moment of perceiving the stressor, also is feeling helpless or powerless or lacking control, that's that uncontrollability piece, then the stress arousal moves into the range of traumatic stress. And so they're connected. It all has to do with how our own survival brain is perceiving the current situation. And this is one of the reasons why you can have, you know, 10 people experience a car, a massive car accident, and you're going to have 10 different responses. Some of them might be mild, mild stress. Some of them might be really traumatic. Um, or if you have a squad of 13 infantrymen who are get caught in an ambush, some of them might experience trauma. Some of them might only experience stress because our survival brain does this neuroception process, this threat appraisal process, based on its own catalog of all of the prior times it has had to you know, check out and appraise. So my implicit memory in my survival brain is not going to be the same as yours, Joel. And we could have the same experience, but we could experience the same thing in the world but we're bringing different kind of memory banks, unconscious memory banks, and ways that our survival brain is gonna respond. 
And one of the reasons why stress can move into the traumatic end is that the current situation may include triggers or, or cues that remind a survival brain of a previous time when it really was traumatic for that person. This is one of the ways that childhood trauma can often show up for us as adults, and we're totally unconscious about it. We have no idea that this is what's going on. But if a current event sort of matches in some way a cue from an event when we really were powerless or lacking control, which often happened in childhood, then our survival brain and our nervous system and our body, they're going to be responding today exactly as if that previous event was still happening because for the survival brain it is. Because could, could you say a bit more about, you know, some people listening might be like, well, this is really, you know, right today, this is so new and novel. Um, how could that remind me of something from childhood? You know, like I never went through a, a global pandemic in this way. So <clears throat> there could be people who had childhood medical problems um, where they had illnesses or high fevers in childhood, where they were hospitalized or, you know, might have been premature birth. And so they were then in an incubator for several months before they were able to go home. Anyone who has had childhood medical trauma or anyone who's lost, like in childhood, they might have seen a family member in the hospital and it was really traumatic for them. And then the family member died and they couldn't save the family member. We have no idea how survival brains might have kind of locked onto this. It doesn't have to be rational for our thinking brain to figure it out. Um, so those are just some ways that even though it's a global pandemic um, it, and that's new, there's these ways it could have triggers. Someone might lose their job now and they as a child experienced homelessness or parents who lost jobs. And so not just the, the fear of what do I do now that I've lost my job, but also the kind of reflected, rippled powerlessness that was along with watching that effect on their childhood family. Now, there's just no way to know how survival brains might connect that. And presumably because, because it's so um, impactful what's happening now in so many areas of our life, there's actually a huge potential for this kind of reactivation to occur. Absolutely there is, especially because, you know, isolation is one of the chronic stressors that can add to our stress arousal without us knowing it. You know, loneliness and, and social isolation have been linked in empirical research with, you know, more chronic inflammation, um, problems with memory, um, self-reported perceived stress levels increasing, more stress hormones. It's been shown in all of these things. And so you're taking... You're taking a new situation, potentially with triggers back to childhood that no one's aware of, or some other traumatic event. You're putting people in truly potentially traumatic circumstances, like these healthcare providers who are having to make this life or death decision about who gets the ventilator, right? So you're adding things like that. You have people who are watching the news and on social media 24 seven, and so they're constantly reactivating their survival brains from doing that. And we'll talk about why we do that in a moment. And then you have this potential of everybody's at their home and they're all socially isolated. And that can be exacerbating stress arousals too. So um, it really is in some ways a perfect storm for even the most regulated people, the most healthy people to end up experiencing stress that moves into the traumatic end of the spectrum. So um, how do we know, you know, if we're feeling, if, if trauma is being activated and um, even if we're in a kind of chronic stress, you know, maybe we could explore different parts of that continuum. And then that might come, that might come back to what you just said about reactivating the survival brain by being on, um, uh, Facebook all the time or in the news. I don't know if it connects or not, but how do we recognize those signs? Yeah. Okay. So let me take those backwards in order yeah. or mixed in or switched. When the, the thinking brain's protection plan, the survival brain's protection plan is constantly scanning the environment. If it's finds something threatening or challenging, it turns on all these hormones. It turns on stress arousal to try and get us to safety 
so that we're away from danger. That's how the survival brain copes. That's how any mammal responds. Um, and we're mammals. So our thinking brain can do something different from that. So for our thinking brain, its protection plan is to try to anticipate and then plan and prevent unwanted things from happening. And then it can make decisions and, and you know, communicate with others, but it is always trying to anticipate and plan. One of the ways it usually does this is by checking out the current situation and comparing it to our conscious memory. It's different from that implicit memory that the survival brain has that we were talking about before. Conscious memory is the things we can actively, intentionally think about and remember. So with our thinking brain, it looks and says, okay, this is a novel situation. What are the features of this situation that are similar to a previous situation I've experienced? And then it thinks through like, how does this match? Does it match or not? Oh, well, last time I had to do this thing, so I should plan and do this thing again. So that's how the thinking brain goes about it. The thinking brain is trying to predict and prevent unwanted things from happening. That's what it does. When there isn't enough information in, its, in our conscious memory, you know, none of us have lived through a century, once in a century pandemic before. So this is one of those times when, okay, maybe, maybe there's not a lot in my conscious memory I can think about. Then the thinking brain wants to get more information. And that's why we feel compelled from a thinking brain perspective. Get on social media, you know, watch videos of people who are, who've talked about it. Watch the news, be on the news, all the, have the television screen on all the time. And this is helping the thinking brain feel a little bit more in control. Oh, I'm gathering more information. I don't know yet, but I'm gathering the information. I'm going to be able to anticipate and prevent and predict and prevent this unwanted thing from happening. That's helping our thinking brain feel better. But guess what? <laughs> I think I knew you were going here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is completely freaking our survival brains out because every time we're looking for new information and we're watching these statistics and you know, our mind sees the statistics jump and then the thinking brain is very sort of quietly, we might not even be aware of it, but I'm sure it's racing. Well, I just felt this twitch in my side. Am I, am I sick? You know, who, who have I seen and then where were they sick and where do I go get testing? And so we have this like looping thoughts that start and it gets fed by watching the news and interacting with, with, with the idea all the time. Each time we have one of those racing thoughts, the survival brain, which is not just scanning around, but scanning inside, it's seeing the racing thoughts and saying, oh, something must be wrong. I gotta turn stress on. And then we turn stress on and we start having physical reactions, rapid heart rate, sweaty palms, nausea, tight jaw, muscle tension. We have those things, and then the survival brain says, oh, I'm noticing these tension places in my body. I must, something must be wrong, I'm afraid, and, and it will turn more stress on. And then the brain, thinking brain starts looping more, and it becomes this positive feedback loop, and it happens all day long for people who are not becoming really aware of the need to be very judicious and intentional about how much news we're consuming, how much time on social media we're spending. Because when we're on it, we're creating this vicious feedback loop that will feed itself and just keep making it worse. Now, how does trauma feed into that? For those of us who come from histories of trauma, and I'm in this group, I mean, I've now worked through and resolved most of these implicit memory capsules but many people haven't. They're not even sure that they have them. They might've happened in childhood, right? And so it's not in their conscious awareness. In any stressful or traumatic event, the body, the survival brain is going to be picking up and sort of taking a photograph of what happened in that moment. All the sights and sounds and smells around us, and then all of the different things inside us, any physical sensations that were going on in that moment, any emotions that were present in that moment, and any stress arousal that was turned on in that moment. If something is related to an unresolved trauma, we can be triggered, the survival brain can be tracking the current moment 
and it can remind it of one of those same cues in this unresolved memory capsule from the past. And when that happens, it might be a physical sensation, it might be a smell, it might, like if someone has the smell of alcohol from having been in the hospital as a kid, for example, or it might be a sound, sirens um, from ambulances, it might be a sight, um, it might be something in the body. Whenever that happens, then the survival brain taps into that implicit unresolved memory capsule, and it will then react as if that original traumatic capsule moment is happening again, because for the survival brain it is. And the reason it turns this on in this way is it is an invitation for us to do the recovery so that that memory capsule can kind of start to dissolve and the survival brain can detach that previous thing from what's happening now. But many of us don't know what's going on. And so we're not taking the necessary steps to do that work, to resolve that previous memory capsule and have it disconnected from what's happening right now. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, and I just, what I appreciate there is it's like the body, I think I got this right. You're saying it's, it's actually almost like a healing kind of yes. mechanism of the body. Although, you know, we're just not, most people aren't equipped in that moment to actually allow it to be so. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's exactly that. We have innate in us the capacity to recover even from the most traumatic events. The problem is many of us don't understand how the mechanisms of that work. It took me 15 years to figure out and understand it all. And I had a really great teacher in my own mind and body as well as teachers who were working with me. And I could then see how things were changing. I could see it changing in the men and women I trained. And some of their stories are, are in the book as well. And it, it took a while to put it all together. And you know, most of us aren't taught about that. And so we miss these opportunities where previous stressful experiences, previous traumatic experiences have come back up to the surface and our survival brain is in a position to then do that recovery. And most of us just don't know how to do it and we're blocking it. So the body-based trauma therapies, somatic experiencing, sensory motor psychotherapy, um, they're, they're designed to have the, the therapist, um, the clinician serve as sort of a surrogate awareness. They work with an individual they track what's going on, watching the physical reactions and sensations and body movements in their client. And then they kind of mirror that back to their client and direct their client's attention in particular ways so that their client's survival brain and nervous system can do that recovery. It doesn't have to be something that's done dyadically. We can learn how to do that for ourselves. And that's what we teach in MFIT. Um, because as long as you have stabilized enough attentional control and you know where you need to be directing your attention, because attention has these ripple effects, you know, throughout our, our brain and body and knowing where to direct it, we can learn to do that for ourselves. It's not particularly hard because it's innate wiring. It's just in some ways overcoming all of the other wiring that we've done that, that is impeding that process. Before we go into that, I think that's, a, you know, we have to go into that in a rich way. Um, there's something I wanted to bring in, which you said, which was like, you said some people, uh, you know, you mentioned soldiers, you know, uh, they go into a situation and it becomes traumatic. And then other people go in and it doesn't become traumatic. And I wondered if you could just say a bit more about that. Was that, was that solely due to the sense of agency people might have in a, in a moment, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. I feel like I finished that answer and then I moved in a different direction and I forgot to talk about agency. So I'm really, really glad that you brought it back up. We talked a while ago about the stress trauma continuum. Where we are on that stress trauma continuum has to do with whether our survival brain is perceiving us to be helpless and powerless and lacking control. That moves us to the traumatic end of the spectrum, as I said before. One of the best ways to kind of provide protection, advanced protection against the likelihood of ending up at the trauma end of the spectrum is 
by training ourselves to have agency in any situation. The ability to feel like, to really perceive in a moment, there is choice right now. Even if it's a really, and if it's a situation that's entirely out of our control, if we can still perceive some sense of choice, not just consciously, but unconsciously in the survival brain, then we won't move to the traumatic end of the spectrum. And that's the principle on which MFIT is based because it's all about teaching people how to feel agency in their mind and body, even during stress, because that helps to protect. <clears throat> Will it always preserve someone from ending up in the trauma spectrum? No, because some human events are so big that the body is going to react in a stress, in, you know, in a traumatic way. If the survival brain perceives in a really intense situation, there's a possibility I'm not going to live through this. It doesn't matter if you have agency or not. The survival brain is still going to be experiencing trauma in that situation. And it's going to start taking various actions in terms of, you know, which organs it's starting to shut down, how it's starting to conserve oxygen, how it's just turning off anything that is non-essential in this moment to make it through this moment. And out at that end of the spectrum with freeze responses, it, there is no way not to have trauma. If someone experienced a lot of freeze responses as a child, then something today that might not be actually, quote, objectively life or death in that moment that survival brain may still perceive it as life or death because of the unresolved, unhealed prior freeze responses. And that's the biggest contributor to not just having traumatic stress in the moment of an extreme event, like an ambush, like we talked about in the soldiers, but having unresolved freeze responses is the number one predictor for stress spectrum disorders like PTSD, anxiety disorders, and it is really correlated with a range of other symptoms of dysregulation, cognitive symptoms, emotional symptoms, physical symptoms, um, behavioral symptoms. And that is what happens when we've narrowed our window of tolerance to stress arousal. It, it can happen at any point. Um, did that answer the question? Mm, yeah, so what so I guess, far, yeah. I like that you talk about that, that, that kind of um, window of tolerance and that it sounds like it behooves us in a way to be doing long-term work, you know, that, that, because yes. um, there's, there's, you know, in a way we're talking about what can, what can we do in the moment yes. and what directing attention, a sense of agency, we'll go into those in a moment, but that over, over the long term, we need to be doing the kind of work that widens that window of tolerance we have so that, we become more resilient, you know, we're more spacious and capable and that the events of life will, will not, um, you know, reactivate that trauma anymore because it's either healed or, you know, we become bigger than it. Like I can imagine there are soldiers yes. or people who work in high stress situations that have got so much spaciousness and resilience that they're able to stay skillful, you know, and responsive in those environments. Absolutely. The more prior stress and trauma that we have resolved and healed and recovered from, the wider our window becomes. And it's like this adaptive capacity that we bring to any event. We, people who have wide windows are much more likely to keep their thinking brain functions online during stress because as our window narrows, you know, stress affects the thinking brain and survival brain differently. For the survival brain, the greater the stress, the more the survival brain is right there in it, and the more it's learning and generalizing from that event. That's how we can end up having these traumatic cues. But for the thinking brain, the greater the stress arousal or the more prolonged the stress arousal, the more our thinking brain functions get degraded. It's one of the reasons why we get really distracted and can't concentrate, why we have so much sort of forgetfulness. We, we're trying to remember something consciously and we just can't remember it. Um, we lose our keys or we miss an appointment. Um, it's also the reason why with really traumatic events, 
we might have many conscious memories of them, or they might be really like inconsistent and fragmented. And that's because the thinking brain was almost entirely offline during those events, during those freeze responses. So um, when we are coping and trying to, to heal um, and we get a wider window, the thinking brain can be online during stress so we can make better decisions and stay connected to other people during those challenging events. Um, we can also have more tolerance for uncertainty. It doesn't make us, we don't turn on as much stress when there's uncertainty like now. We also have a lot more flexibility to flow when like get a massive curveball and life, you know, just massive transitions we weren't expecting or, or big things that weren't, weren't on the agenda. We, we have a lot more ability to flow with that. So having a wide window is a really important adaptive capacity that we want to be doing over the long term. Plus, there are certain things we can be doing just in the moment to try and help too. So you want to, we kind of want to be doing both. I think it's um, at some point interesting that we maybe explore like the role of meditation in widening the window in the sense of our, you know, sense of presence or, um, you know, experience of, of being alive in the moment. Um, but I want to come back to, uh, you said like agency is one of the core things we help people develop. Like how do you, how do you go about helping someone find that agency so it becomes reliable in the moment, even in these stressful situations? Well, I've toyed with the problem. I don't always like to use the word agents. I use the word agency a lot. Yeah. Also don't like to use the word agency because for many people, their association with the word agency is consciously feeling like writing a new self story, like having a new narrative positively kind of reframing the situation, seeing it in a wider context. Those are all thinking brain agency, okay? Now, thinking brain agency, just like willpower, just like any other thinking brain capacity, they're all gonna be degraded when we're in chronic or traumatic stress. It's one of the reasons why it's really hard to like see the positive when we're stressed out or when you know, like we have a cold, we always, you know, just have a harder time feeling grateful and feeling optimistic because it's hard to do those things when we have chronic stress. So I want to make sure, because I know a lot of coaches think of this kind of agency. This is not the kind of agency that MFIT trains. The kind of agency, it does, it's sort of a second, um, a second order or third order effect but the training is specifically focused on training survival brain agency because survival brain agency is what decides, do we turn stress on? Can we turn it off? Is it gonna move down the spectrum to traumatic stress? All of that is what MFIT is really focused on. And when we have survival brain agency, then the thinking brain automatically is gonna have agency because we're gonna be inside our window. Do you see the difference? Yeah, totally, yeah, I love it. So um, training survival brain agency requires the survival brain gathering many, many, many repeated experiences of experiencing stress arousal and fully recovering. I know that sounds super simple, but that is truly what teaches, that's what changes the survival brain's implicit memory so that it can learn I can experience stress and challenge, but I'm going to be fine. I can fully recover from it. But for people that are sitting on big stress loads of prior chronic stress or prior trauma that they've never recovered from, their, think, their survival brain doesn't really have access to this kind of agency. Because for that survival brain, that survival brain experiences stress in the body or strong negative emotions in the body and it doesn't trust that it can recover from it. It doesn't trust that it knows how to move through it. And it then starts exacerbating it. It makes bigger symptoms. It leads to more acting out behavior and more um, behavior that is kind of a, an adversarial relationship between the survival brain and the thinking brain. That's when we end up doing things like thinking brain override, which I did for decades, you know, the compartmentalization and pushing through and not really dealing with it. And then it's sort of simmering underneath and 
coming out as physical illness and coming Which is what our society is geared. Our society is really, it, it really um, values and incentivizes thinking brain override, but it is not a healthy relationship for thinking brain and survival brain together, but it's definitely incentivized. And in fact, so much of the discussion of things like stress hardiness and grit, most of those concepts are on the, in the thinking brain override camp. They're kind of someone who can still persevere through adversity. That's great during an extreme situation. That is not healthy as a constant habitual way of moving through the world. I was exhibit A of that, but I've seen that in so many other people that I've worked with. Um, and it's one of the reasons I wrote the book and one of the reasons I stress survival brain agency so much because it, it is the only way to break down and recover from these stress loads that we're carrying. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean you know, it, it brings up, um, we will go into in a moment, this survival brain agency, but it brings up a moment for me um, in this moment, this question of uh, the, the, what impact this has collectively you know, in the way that we live in, in culture, in our relationship to the planet, if we're, if we're kind of chronically stressed, you know, how is that impacting the way we relate and, and, and connect? You know? and it is having tremendous imbalancing effects on us as individuals, on our families and social groups up to the level of nations and on our relationship with the planet. It's just all out of balance. And you know, I, I know the statistics in the United States the best because that's where I am. And, and um, you know, the United States in some ways has worse health outcomes and worse well-being outcomes than some of our um, competitor, sort of peers, not competitors, but peers in terms of socioeconomic and um, size of economy and industrialization levels. You know, we, we have much worse health outcomes in some ways. You know, the majority of Americans have at least one chronic health condition. And they don't connect the dots between that and this underlying long-term stress load, this allostatic load that they have been building throughout their lives. Um, you know, more than 100 million Americans suffer from chronic pain, which is a sign of chronic inflammation, which is a sign of all these imbalances. You know, 120, 125 suffer from high blood pressure and other forms of cardiovascular disease. 50 million suffer from allergies. Um, 50 million suffer from rheumatoid arthritis, one of the autoimmune diseases. You know, 40 million are diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. 22 or 23 million have depression. I mean, it's just you, you look at these big statistics and you see the growth rate that has been really exponential in our country in suicides in the last 25 years, in drug overdose deaths, um, drug use and alcohol use, uh, adrenaline seeking behavior, domestic violence, all of these things are cultural and social manifestations of these imbalances. And because we've so disconnected the way that we're moving through the world day to day from these outcomes, these longer term effects, we're not connecting the dots. Um, and we keep incentivizing to, you know, not live in a way that's going to help that full recovery for our systems to come back into balance. Um, in some ways, coronavirus, ha it has two silver linings. What I'll talk well, I'll talk about one right yeah. now and I'll talk about another one later, but the one I'll talk about right now is coronavirus has the first silver lining of it has enforced this planet-wide pause and gives an opportunity for everyone to just stop and get off of their respective gerbil wheels of productivity and notice how distracting and anxiety-producing it is to be home and have to be with their families, which in some cases is definitely leading to domestic violence. But in other cases, I think it's helping relationships that might have been like passing in the wind actually like spend some time and realize, yes, we want to recommit to this or no, we really should probably leave this relationship. Like 
I think that it's, it's just forcing all of us to stop and really pay attention to the fact that we have bodies <laughs> and that these bodies can get sick and that we need to make choices for helping to make ourselves and our collectives healthier. So that's one yeah. way. Just, I couldn't, that was my question. Um, I was going to comment on that. You, you, and I, um, more or less everyone I've spoken to uh, have said, you know, there's something about this whole thing that I love. You know, yes, there's all this uh, tragedy and uncertainty, and yet they're all like, oh, yeah, like I've been forced to stop. And whew, what a relief. And in yes. our house, you know, touch wood, um, it's be- there's a beautiful atmosphere in our house, you know, mm. around my wife and my child. And, yes. um, you know, we've been forced to slow down. And, um, you know, so, so I really, I'm really pleased. I think this is profound, yeah? I hope we don't lose this insight. Yeah. Yes, I hope our societies don't lose this insight either. Um, I think people are at this point still a little hesitant to speak this particular truth too loudly because it might seem, I don't know, they might feel like it doesn't convey in a world where people are losing jobs and losing their lives and that yeah. say that there's this upside can feel callous. It isn't callous. This is a both and. And I think we would be in a better overall situation with fewer likelihoods of people ending up in the ICU and on ventilators if some of those deeper imbalances were solved. You know, the the data coming from Italy, 99% of the deaths there were in people who had some kind of persistent underlying chronic health condition. And for some of them, it was a chronic physical condition, especially hypertension. But for some of them, it was a chronic mental condition, a, a, a mental, um, you know, anxiety or, or depression. So it's important that having some time to pause and really reevaluate what's most important. What do we value in ourselves, in our families, in our in our work groups, in our schools, in our countries, on our planet? Like, this is an amazing time for us to have some of that. Maybe when we get past the peak, we can start having some of those conversations. Mm. Yeah. It's just wonderful to see kind of the structures that we have outgrown as a society. Right. Need to move on from and need to recreate in a new, more balanced way. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's it, isn't it? The break is allowing perspective and, um, let's talk about the second silver lining because I want to make sure we have some time to talk about this survival brain agency and the role of attention too. So we talk about what we can do in a moment, but you said there was a second silver lining too. Yes. The second silver lining actually feeds very nicely into talking about concrete things people can do. And that is habit change is always hard because of neuroplasticity in the brain, because of epigenetics in our bodies, we have built these neurobiological structures that have inertia and habit change goes against the inertia. And so it takes a lot of intentional and conscious effort. But there is one structural time when habit change is a little easier. And that is during some kind of big exogenous shock that has upended all of our existing routines and habits. And we are right now on this planet in this massive exogenous shock of coronavirus. Everybody's lives have been completely turned upside down with social distancing and stay at home, shelter in place. That actually means this is a really good time, not just to be evaluating what what we wanna prioritize in our lives, but also to commit to some new habit changes because the previous routines have been so disrupted, there's like this window of opportunity to start new habit change. And so I've been really trying to help people understand that that is a second silver lining of being caught at home right now. You know, all of your existing work routines and commuting and taking the kids to school and taking them to their activities, whatever it is, all of that's up in the, it's gone. And so this is a time when we can really concentrate on some of the deeper window widening habits that have an effect over time of helping us to resolve that prior stress and trauma and to widen our windows. Mm. 
Wonderful. What, what would you recommend people start to do? Like there's these long-term practices, there's the survival brain agency. We want to talk about develop. How can we, you know, you said that we, sh- we learn to shift between stress back and stress back. And then there's, yes. um, what was the other thing? Um, forgotten it. It'll come to, it'll come to me, but um, <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that. So what would you recommend people start doing? Yes. So in the book, I have several chapters that talk about um, how to help the survival brain build survival brain agency. Um, and, you know, there are eight chapters in the book that kind of go through that. But I'd like to talk right now about the window widening habits anyone can be doing right now. And one of them is training our attention. So the first window widening habit anybody can be doing is to start training attention every day to some of the target objects that help our survival brain to feel safe and stable and grounded. So anytime we notice that we're anxious or stressed, if we redirect our attention to these attentional target objects, it shows the survival brain that yes, they're stressed, but I'm also grounded. And that is usually enough for the survival brain to turn on the recovery functions and for us to discharge some of that arousal. And when we do that over and over and over again, it is showing the survival brain, I can have stress, but I can also recover, it's gonna be fine. That's what builds survival brain agency in short. And for all of your listeners, they can go to my website and I have a five minute audio version, guided audio version of that exercise that they can do download it, do it every day. It really shows the survival brain, this refuge that's always available to us in any situation, because the best target object for the survival brain is the places, the sensations at the places of contact between the body and our surroundings. So even as we've been talking, Joel, I've been noticing the pressure of my butt and the backs of my chairs on my chair and the hardness on one side and the heat on another we can track the sensations at contact points, feet with the floor, lying in your bed, the back of your body with the bed, butt with the chair. All of these, it sounds so simple, but our, our scientific research shows this really does shift the way that the parts of the brain that regulate stress and emotions fire. It shifts the way the nervous system can recover. Um, and it gives people a lot more survival brain agency. So that's one concrete thing people can do right now. Second concrete thing people can do right now, get more sleep. (laughs) Um, The survival brain does a lot of its recovery functions when we are getting restful sleep. It does a lot of pruning um, of synapses in the brain. It does a lot of toxin and other, um, you know, uh, damage kind of removal and and elimination and healing, tissue repair. Um, It does a lot of these recovery functions while we're sleeping. So if you're not getting at least eight to nine hours a night on a regular basis, one concrete thing to work on right now is really developing some healthy um, hygiene around setting good routines to set the body up for restful sleep. Um, And I talk about some of those in the book. Third uh, window widening habit everybody can be doing right now is getting enough cardiovascular and stretching and weight weight bearing exercise. I know when we're locked in our homes, that can be hard. Obviously, there's social distancing that we can do the mask, walking outside or running outside. But if we're stuck in the house, an easy thing that you don't even need any equipment or big space for um, High intensity interval training is a really great way to help 10, 15 minutes at a time. There's some wonderful apps that are free that you can use um, and do a round of high intensity interval training. Then after you finish that, sit down and do the contact points exercise, noticing that contact with the chair and the body will do more discharge of stress activation. That can happen after any of cardiovascular exercise. Um, So that's number three. Number four making sure that even though we are socially distanced, that we are, um, that we are taking time to connect with our relationships, whether that's like we're doing right now on Zoom or some other video conferencing, whether it's a phone call, whether it's people in our homes, really making time for live quality connection every day. 
that helps the survival brain and the nervous system are also involved in our uh, close relationships. And that actually helps them recover. Um, you know, having strong relationships is a resilience booster in the literature. Social, chronic social tension in our relationships and anxiety um, and loneliness and social isolation, those are all resilience underminers. So we can all focus during this sort of slower time on really building relationships. And then the last window widening habit, and I talk a fair amount and offer lots of resources in the book, is about diet. Um, a lot of our, 70% of our immune system res, resides in the microbiome, which is all those, you know, little flora and uh, bacteria that are living in our digestive tract. And interestingly, even 95% of our body's serotonin, which is one of the neurotransmitters that is involved in headaches and anxiety and depression and insomnia and irritable bowel syndrome, we make all of our serotonin in our gut. And so if we are not eating a diet that is really supportive of our microbiome, we can end up creating chronic inflammation in the body and a range of different things that that's creating the stress, not even something around us. So for people who you know, rely heavily on sugar or caffeine or pain medications or alcohol, um, steroids, all of those things are really bad for the gut and ways to rebuild the gut, eating lots of good, healthy, whole foods, especially fruits and vegetables, um, and taking probiotics um, or drinking kombucha. And there's other probiotic foods like kimchi and sauerkraut and really focusing while we're all having to cook at home on our diet and the quality of our food. That's, that's the last concrete suggestion I have. Mm. What, what I like about what you're sharing is, um, you know, the, the holistic nature of um, stress and trauma and our well-being, you know, like we could even say like, well, trauma, stress, well-being, you know, we, yes. and that, um, you know, I think this is the, 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 the systemic way or the holistic way we need to start seeing our lives and our well-being yes as opposed to everything being so compartmentalized. Yes. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, the compartmentalization is, I'm hoping, one of the biggest structures we collectively decide to let go of as a result of coronavirus. Um, because coronavirus is bringing attention to all of these underlying conditions that we've compartmentalized and hidden out of our awareness or that we're just managing with medication, but we're not really thinking about what they are a sign of in the bigger holistic nature of our lives. Um, and I was really guilty of this for so many years myself. So I know the temptation and I know, I know why we were motivated to do that. In my case, a lot of it was ignorance. I didn't understand how these things were connected and that's why I wanted to write the book to show those connections so that people who still don't realize how much we are these really not just individually connected organisms, but interconnected. You know, stress and emotion contagion is one of the newest ways that neuroscience is going. And, and it's just amazing that it is pervading and each of us have the ability to make different choices. And I'm hoping that that is one of the big things that we collectively take from this mm. extraordinary experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, me too. Me too. Um, and yeah, I'm so pleased that you talk about the body in this way, you know, developing um, uh, because it seems like, you know, you're going to be teaching on the power of embodied transformation and um, um, you know, it's such a, a resource in these times to help us, you know, find a kind of creative compassionate wise response to the situations we find ourselves in. And um, um, like the, a lot of people listening are coaches, just as a final question, you know, you talked about this movement from developing the, the survival brain agency. Um, how do you like, you know, I know you won't have long to speak about this, but this shift from stress to, um, to, I don't know, non-stress or well-being how do you help someone train train that? You know, that could be something useful for the coaches listening that they can support their clients with. And I know you probably have six chapters on that, but 
Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll just give a, a brief answer now, and I'm really excited to dig into that more deeply in our workshop um, and in the workshop that I'll be doing the, the questioning with um, Bessel van der Kolk as part of our sequence. But for now, I'll just say coaches, anyone who is in any kind of helping profession, um, it could be teachers, it could be nurses, it could be doctors, it could be therapists, it can be coaches. We have extra responsibility in some ways to embody the wide possible window ourselves because the relationships that we develop with our students or our clients or our you know, patients um, those survival brains of our clients are looking to us for safety and guidance, and they are picking up from what is going on in our minds and bodies. You know, the last 15 years has really started to show this amazing kind of burgeoning field around the neuroscience of stress and emotion contagion, and all of the different mechanisms in our brain and nervous system and body that control that. We are constantly resonating with our environment around us, especially the humans around us. And that resonance is deepest in our attachment relationships with our romantic partners, our parents, our kids. But it's also really, really strong in relationships that involve some kind of power difference, um, leaders and their followers, um, bosses and subordinates, teachers and students, and clients and their uh, coaches and their clients. You, know, you don't, might not think of it as a power difference, but it is in terms of you as the coach have the expertise and the wisdom and this, this person is coming to you for guidance and help. And so they, their survival brain is going to perceive this as a power difference. Even if you don't, their survival brain will. And so as coaches, we have this extra responsibility to really be embodying the most regulation we can so that the survival brain of the person we're helping is going to pick up on our resonance and that will help them to start down-regulating even without them having to do any of these other habits that I was talking about. Conversely, when coaches themselves are you know, off their center and imbalanced and might have gotten where they've gotten by following many of these society-wide incentivized patterns like compartmentalization and constant achievement while kind of compartmentalizing personal life or physical body or relationships. Even if you think as the, as the coach that you've got it all together and you're showing up fully for your client, your mind and body are embodying all of that compartmentalization. And the survival brain of your client is unconsciously picking up on it. So, um, it's really important that we recognize how much what's going on in us is having these ripple effects for good or for ill. Um, and coaches have to be extra, extra careful with it. Mm. Wow. What a, what a, an exquisite closing statement. <laughs> yeah. I was feeling that one. I think that's a great call for coaches, for practitioners, for doctors, um, you know, to kind of tune into that, 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 that kind of relationship that we can be having with people right now. So that's a, a lovely way to end. I want to thank you for um, your time. It feels like we, we could have actually spent three hours talking and still, <laughs> um, you know, would have a lot to talk about. And I know you mentioned your book. Where can we find out more about your work as well? So the best place for listeners to learn more about my work is my website, which is elizabeth-stanley.com. You know, on the website, you can download the contact points exercise that I mentioned. I have references there for helping clients to find body-based trauma therapists um, who are certified in somatic experiencing and um, sensory motor psychotherapy. And I also have all of the published scientific research about MFIT and its effects, um, all of the good improvements in cognitive performance, in physical, physiological um, resilience in sleep in fewer negative emotions it's all up there and you can find all the science papers and you have links there also to be able to buy the book both here and overseas um, so I hope that your listeners will be interested in buying the book and learning more because obviously there is a lot more that we just couldn't get to today 
But this has been a wonderful conversation, Joel. I feel like it went very, very fast. <laughs> yeah, me too. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. We'll be back very soon. And I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Be well. See you soon. Thank you.